Hello, all you angels, demons, humans, and anything else who might be listening. I'm Brie. And I'm Christiana. And welcome to the End Times. Welcome to Sauntering Vaguely Podwords. A nice and accurate Good Omens podcast. You are listening to part two of our deep dive into episode three of Good Omens season one. Before we start, here are a few disclaimers and housekeeping items. The views represented in this show do not necessarily represent our views or the views of our employers. This podcast episode contains spoilers for season one, episode three, Hard Times. If you've never watched the show and you're just tuning in, we encourage you to watch the show or at least episode three first. Trust us, it is great. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, So we're in part two of Hard Times. We started with the cold open last episode. From here, we'll be continuing past the cold open and moving further into like the actual plot of the show, quote unquote, if you will. Uh, So we enter on Aziraphale, struggling to figure out how to update heaven on things, uh, like how things are going with the Antichrist. Later, he and Crowley meet with their respective agents, quote unquote, in an attempt to find the Antichrist. Newt begins to connect his ancestral dots, and Adam has a spiritual awakening. We also continue to see what jerks the other angels are to Aziraphale as Gabriel and others grow suspicious of him. We meet none other than our second horse person, Famine. And finally, episode three wraps up with the infamous bandstand scene, TM. And by giving us a taste of Adam's powers via nuclear power station. Our second part of this episode, episode three, starts on a Friday and it is one day until everything goes bang. Bang indeed. (laughs) We start off on Aziraphale trying to figure out how to tell, aka panicking about telling, his boss, Gabriel, that the Antichrist has been mislaid, but now Aziraphale has found him. He doesn't know how to say that. And you can tell he's so very conflicted. Oh, yeah. He's like, I I need to tell Heaven, but I want to tell Crowley. Yeah. He's very... Yeah, he. I mean, you can tell he's pacing back and forth. He's wringing his hands. He's just really, really stressed out about all that. And also, when the camera zooms in, because I think it comes from the outside, right? I think so. It pans from the street in, and then we get, like, a quick view of the sign on his door. Mm-hmm. And I tried pausing that so many times, I have no clue. That has, like, his hours on it? Or yeah. Yes, but there was something else written on it. Oh! Like, I didn't know if it was an Easter egg, or maybe it was just too blurry for me to tell. We'll have to try to find it. We can update everyone then when we do find it. Or it could just be the hours. <laughs> yeah, well, knowing fail, he's probably got it written so confusingly that it takes 30 years to read it, so... <laughs> So speaking of the Antichrist, we're back to Tadfield, where Adam and Dog are taking a lovely little stroll through the the village. And Dog is having, like, the time of his life. Yes! And we get to this cute little scene where it's describing Dog's whole perception of the universe has been changed because his size dictates certain things about him. And he's worrying the large ginger cat. And I can just imagine when the cat dies, the stories it has. Like, there was this little (laughs) punk of a hellhound, and it thought it was scaring me. I beat him up. (laughs) Yeah. It is very, very cute. That cat's definitely going to Valhalla. Going all cats? I Probably. Presumably. So they come across Anathema in her garden, and she is crying over her lost book. They kind of get into a conversation. Anathema and Adam get into a conversation, to clarify. And Adam finds out Anathema is not a witch. She's an occultist. That's fine. So we're going to pause and talk about a couple of things in this scene. 
The first is we know Aziraphale and Crowley accidentally stole the book. Mm-hmm. I could also see them being book thieves in the past. Like this can't be the first time they've accidentally acquired a book Aziraphale really wants. Accidentally acquired. Like, how did I get this? The whole scene of Adam asking Anathema if she is a witch is so cute. He's like, excuse me for asking, and I hope this isn't a personal question, <laughs> but are you a witch? And she's like, no, I'm an occultist. Do you think Adam knows what an occultist is? Um, I mean, he's like, well, that's all right then. So I'm presuming not. But also, I just feel like it's really funny that he goes and asks that question when he and his friends were literally playing British Inquisition in front of Anathema and she saw them. <laughs> The visible discomfort. Like, why would she tell you even if she was? Art thou a witch? Nope. <laughs> really does represent children well because it's a really personal question that an adult wouldn't really ask unless they knew you well. But a kid's like, hey, are you a witch? Yeah, kids, like, they're so much more open to just talking about things. It's, it's a fun scene. He does have good manners, though. Very good manners. His parents taught him well. So they enter into Anathema's cottage and Dog does not have a good time with this. He's got a couple of issues here. So there's a horseshoe at the entrance to the house. Mm -hmm. And folklore with that is that horseshoes, if they are placed in a way that the opening of the horseshoe is at the top, keep evil out. Right. So Dog is not thrilled about having to go underneath that horseshoe to get into the cottage. It's extremely uncomfortable for him. Yes. But he does it anyway, because in Adam's words... My father says to keep him, I have to do, he has to do everything I say. I can't tell if Anathema and Adam notice this and they don't mention it, Mm -hmm. but his eyes burn as he goes through. Yeah, he's got like glowing red eyes. Which as someone who owns a small dog, that probably isn't that abnormal. Mine's (laughs) very sweet, but. (laughs) I own a big bad border collie who's not big and bad at all. So we're going back to London here. And we are not only in London, we're in Shadwell's apartment. And Newt gets a good look at all the historical witch-finding gear. We're in Shadwell's apartment. Shadwell is not there. Right. Newt's hanging out kind of like by himself right now. And we see his ancestor's hat. Mm -hmm. We get a good glimpse of this hat from episode two when Agnes Nutter explodes a village and herself. When the hat goes flying up in the air, in the brim of it, it says this hat belongs to... Thou shalt not commit adultery, Pulsifer. We get a really good idea here about how the Witchfinder army has been, quote-unquote, thriving here since the 1960s. We got God narrating the kind of history of the recent Witchfinder army. Mm -hmm. And we got some very, very creative names, like Smith spelled three different ways. Yeah. (laughs) Witchfinder... Milk bottle, I yes. think, is my favorite one. There was, like, salt, too, wasn't there? Salt, pepper, and... Uh, what? There's another one. Spoon? Or something like spoon. that. <laughs> yeah. But we, we see that um, perhaps the Witchfinder army isn't thriving as well as uh, Shadwell would like to claim it has been since the 1600s. He's trying, them. He's doing his best. So we kind of get this little overview of Newt checking things out in the apartment... We learn a little bit about the history of the Witchfinder, and then we flash to a scene where we are in a cafe. Shadwell is meeting Mr. Crowley, who looks remarkably like his father. I wonder why. <laughs> and Crowley is reading the Infernal Times. 
So sometimes we'll see him and Aziraphale reading newspapers. He's always reading the Infernal Times. And Aziraphale's is the Celestial so- Observer. Yes. Yes. Looking good band names. <laughs> this watch through, I actually like paused quite a bit because there's so much detail in this show. Mm-hmm. And first off, I would like to know who in hell's job it is in heaven to publish these newspapers. <laughs> And some of the highlights that we get to see was a soul music collection, which is a nod to the novel because mm-hmm. it in the novel they talk about Crowley had a music collection and it was all real soul music. Yes. And there was also a article that was research reveals exorcism on the rise in Wales. No context. Michael Sheen's at work. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> So, also, I just would like to throw in here, I think David Tennant is looking particularly fine in this scene, and I'm done apologizing for it. He's, like, kicked back in his chair, casually reading the newspaper, and he just looks lovely. Hey, David Tennant. I wonder if he writes for it. Um, (laughs) I wonder if the whole... He would have the flair, I feel, to be a newspaper man. That'd be funny. I think he would. And so, Shadwell comes in, like I said, he's meeting Mr. Crowley. And we find out that Shadwell is, in fact, Crowley's secret operative. Who could have known? And was also, as far as Shadwell is concerned, was Crowley's father's secret operative. Yes. Yeah. And I really wonder what Shadwell thinks Crowley and his father did. (laughs) Well, he says he thinks Crowley's mafia. So presumably his father was mafia as well. That, that, That tracks. It's a family business. So Crowley sets Shadwell to hunting for the boy. He doesn't bother to look at the ledger. He just signs it. That's right. (laughs) Yeah, he's like, okay, like, you know, please read and agree to the terms and conditions of Apple iPhones. (laughs) (laughs) Who reads those anyway? And then there is, I have something about Sergeant Pepper in here, but I can't remember what that was about. Oh, it was, um, Shadwell was saying. Oh, okay. Yeah, go ahead. I'll set my best operatives on it. They'd probably be, um, which finder, Sergeant table sergeant pepper and crowley's just walking away he's like yeah just whatever he stopped listening he's done yeah, he stopped listening at that point <laughs> but my brain thinks to like the beatles album yes I, they probably did that on purpose yeah. that's right he's like i need to find names <laughs> there's also something that's very like witch findery on the tv mm-hmm. in the background did you remember what that was yeah uh, well i don't know for certain but when I was doing uh, my research for Witchfinders and the Witchfinder army armies in real life, I came across this movie from 1968 that was called Witchfinder General. And it was actually about the Witchfinder that we talked about in episode two. So it was like a dramatization of like what actually happened. I kind of am curious if it might not actually be that movie. Either that or I wonder if they had like extra scenes from those scenes oh. in the show and brought them over. Neil Gaiman, come on the show and clarify this for us, please. So we finish up that scene. We go back to Adam, who is having like a spiritual awakening, existential knowledge Oh, he Time. is he is impressed. Anathema and Adam are sitting in Anathema's cottage. 
she is filling Adam in on all of her witchy knowledge and what they don't teach him at schools. Not witchy. It's a cult. It's a cultist knowledge. Oh, this is true. Sorry. A cultist knowledge, such as they're killing whales and climate change is happening and nuclear power stations and how evil they are. They are, according to Adam, in fact, rubbish. There's nothing even boiling in them. No. Serves them right for not bubbling. That's probably one of my favorite quotes in this part of the episode. <laughs> yes. Whales is one of those jokes that this novel and show keeps coming back to. Mm-hmm. And I'm not entirely sure why, other than maybe Sir Terry or Neil just like whales. Yeah. There's, there is like a running theme through the novel and through the show as well about something about whales. They just like them. So we've finished up. We've kind of caught up with where, where Zerafel was. We got caught up to what Crowley is doing with his operatives and to Adam and his extension of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Now we are back in heaven. And as someone who suffers from migraines or as someone who deals with migraines, those scenes just kind of make my head hurt because it's so bright. Yeah. But Aziraphale decides that he needs to do something. So he is having a meeting with his superiors. Aziraphale is trying to explain to the archangels, so his essentially his bosses, and this is Gabriel, Sandalfun, Uriel, and Michael, that there was a mix-up and the, quote, other side has the wrong boy, and the other side has the wrong boy. So, hell has the boy. Or they have the wrong boy. Yes, yeah, that's what I meant. So there's a little bit of back and forth that goes here. He's saying, uh, the, the real boy might be somewhere else and, uh, the demon Crowley, a wily adversary, might be involved. Something along those lines. Yeah, that guy's right. He's like, yeah, he, he keeps me on my toes. <laughs> and he is, once again, straight up lying to heaven. Because mm-hmm. he, he knows that Adam is the actual Antichrist. He knows where Adam is. But he's kind of like putting out half truths where he's like, well, maybe the adversaries, maybe they have the wrong boy. Maybe there was a mix up. Maybe we should check somewhere else and make sure that what they have is right. Right. He's, you know, oh, oh, I I could find out where he is. Meanwhile, we already know. Here he knows where the boy is. He's very, very, very hesitant to tell Gabriel. Just lay it out on the table for him. And. In this scene, Gabriel's not the one he has to be afraid of because Gabriel is just kind of like, oh, this is a zero fail. He just, he's trying really hard, but he's just incompetent. Yeah. And it's Michael that's like, something's up with this angel. Mm-hmm. Like, he's acting really, really squirrely. Because mm-hmm. it's it's sad because Aziraphale, you can tell his whole thing is he's just like, well, if we found him, like, and we could eliminate him, there wouldn't have to be a war, would there? I mean, why is that necessary? And the other archangels, or not the other archangels, but the archangels are just bound and determined. This war is going to happen. They do not care about the civilian casualties, a.k.a. Earth. It's not going to change anything whether they know the Antichrist is where he is or not. This war is happening. And it's pretty devastating to Aziraphale. Yeah, because he really likes Earth. Yeah. He's been there for 6,000 years. He's... Unlike a lot of the other angels. And I think it is implied, or at least I read it maybe on Neil's Tumblr, mm-hmm. that him and Crowley are not the only angel and demons stationed on Earth. Oh. There are other ones elsewhere. They just aren't ones Didn't... we're running into. Right. 
they both are kind of stationed in the London, the London, that part of Europe area. It does make sense. They would be there would be angels and demons on other areas of the earth, though, because trying to have one angel and one demon run the whole that's a lot. <laughs> that, even for supernatural beings, that's yeah. a lot. So the the scene is like how to come off as suspicious one hundred and one <laughs> for a zero foul, and like we said earlier, right? He he's really nervous. He doesn't want to give out the straight truth because he's afraid of what's going to happen to him, mm-hmm. to the earth. And like we said earlier, too, you know, we originally, I think, as a viewer, go in thinking, okay, we have to be afraid of Gabriel in this scene. Mm-hmm. He's he's not the one that's picking up something weird. Right. And maybe it's because he talks to Aziraphale more than the other ones where he's used to him being kind of squirrely like this. Mm-hmm. Because and, the other ones are really like, <laughs> this is weird. And we also get a pretty good, pretty good um, view of of Gabriel's eyes, which are purple. Yes, because he's like the head archangel. Mm-hmm. Do you know if those are contacts or if they were CGI? I do. I looked this up. Uh, I was curious about it myself because I know the contacts were used with other characters. And Neil actually answered this on his Tumblr. They are both. He wore purple contacts, but then there was a color grader that. And this is a direct quote from the post, did his color magic on the eyes as well, probably to give them a little bit of a glow. If you look close, you can see the purple, but they do look like they are glowing a little, just a little bit. It's not like dog's eyes that are really like bright red burning glow. It's not like that. It's just a a hint of it. There's a little bit of light coming kind of from behind. Yeah. So we had the eyes. And we're catching back up with Anathema. One of the cool things Anathema can do is she can see auras. Now, we're not really explained in this universe if this is something that, like, occultists can do or certain people can do or if she's just kind of honed the skill. Mm -hmm. But it's a really cool way to see how different Adam is because she couldn't see his aura. Right. And I think the line was, she can't see Adam's aura for the same reason people in Times Square can't see New York City. Right. Or if you read the novel, uh, the same reason that people standing in Trafalgar Square can't see all of Britain. Just too big. You're looking too close. Yes. And we also see R.P. Tyler, who is like the neighborhood watch person stereotyped. Oh, he's he's intense. He's very upset that Anathema has a map. <laughs> And we also get to see his and his dog's aura. So, so oh, yeah. the, the first scene with the auras shows that we can't see, we couldn't see anything. And this next scene with her and auras, we can see that she's seeing the auras of all the people around her, mm-hmm. even animals. Yes. The wee little dash hound that R.P. Tyler is walking. So after that, we are back in heaven. We're getting suspicious of Aziraphale, like we mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we see it's a very, very brief scene in heaven. Gabriel is standing around with the other archangels. And he says, what did you think of that? And you can tell all the other archangels are like, he's, you know, he's going native. He's, he can't be trusted. Something's weird with this dude. And then we jump out. So after our little scene of suspicion in heaven, Mm -hmm. we're back to Shadwell and Tracy's building. And Newt is continuing his Witchfinder army work, and he's cutting out newspaper clippings. And we hear the phone ring. Madam Tracy answers, and she does this, like, little, hello. 
And I don't know why, but it strikes me funny every single time. And the person on the other side of the the person on the other side of the phone is Aziraphale. And he's like non-phased by this. He's like, oh, you silly humans. Yeah. And he asks for Sergeant Shadwell. Um, and she will endeavor to see if he's available. <laughs> I love her so much. She's a good actress, too. She's amazing. She is absolutely wonderful. We're sure it's pure coincidence that Shadwell is not only Crowley's human operative, but Aziraphale's as well. And it's, it's hilarious because we're shown time and time again that while Aziraphale and Crowley can be a little dense, they're both incredibly intelligent and they have been swindled by the same man <laughs> yes. since the, since at least the 60s. That's a, at the very least when Crowley met him. We don't know where Aziraphale met Shadwell. No, that's not told to us. No. But yeah, they're both these like ancient occult and ethereal creatures, entities, are being swindled by Shadwell, <laughs> which is hilarious. Right. Aziraphale tells Shadwell the Antichrist's name and address and basically says the same thing to him that Crowley did. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing at this part, Shadwell's like, do these people know each other? Right, right. Or, or this must be really important witch business if both of these weirdos are calling me and telling me to find this boy. <laughs> I feel like that is probably absolutely Shadwell's main thing because he is just obsessed with witches or humans that he perceives as witches. So at the same time this is happening, Newt's hanging out in the apartment. He's cutting out newspaper clippings, as one does. And he finds something really interesting. A small village with perfect weather for the time of year. To be specific, for the last 11 years. Yes. Yes. And as he explains to Shadwell, that's not normal. Yearly, these people are getting white Christmases, it snows on Christmas Eve, and the Augusts are long and hot every year. It's like nothing ever changes. It's very status quo. The timing is perfect for everything. Yes. Yeah, the timing of it is what makes it interesting. And I want to put a little one of those things to put your thinking cap on here, Mm -hmm. or whatever kind of cap you wear. (laughs) It's an interesting comparison. Once again, it's very much showing us that things aren't what they seem. Mm Mm-hmm. So you would expect the Antichrist to be, like, messing with things in a negative way. Mm-hmm. Like, ungodly hot summers, yeah. or droughts, or famine. But it's what every little kid would kind of dream of for the different parts of the year, and every adult would reminisce. And, like, oh, this is my, you know, back in my day, things were just perfect. And in this case, it kind of is. Um, Neil Gaiman has, like, a a collection of short stories called Smoke and Mirrors, where everything, a lot of those are things are either not quite what they seem or things are just slightly off kilter enough that makes you go, is this supernatural? And this whole little scene that I'm talking about for five minutes that only is one sentence throwaway really reminds me of that whole work. I don't know what came first, if this or that did. But it's like, it's something at, like, Shadwell says, like, so what's weird about that? And Newt's like, it's really weird because it's too perfect. Mm Mm-hmm. It's like there's something almost, like, uncanny about it. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So we jump from Shadwell's apartment, and we jump to... I I don't know where... Is it in New York? I'm pretty sure. Okay. Uh, And we meet Dr. Raven Sable. 
in a super high class restaurant where the food is absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> it is, but it's also kind of what you think of when you think of really rich, high class dining. Yeah. It's very much the stereotypical tiny, tiny little portions, but they're plated just beautifully. Lavender scented air. <laughs> yeah, that's the first course, a balloon of lavender scented air that the waiter pops into Dr. Raven Sable's assistant's face. <laughs> and it's and she makes a hand motion to like, like mm, waft mm, it up towards her. It's lovely. It's and I'm sure it is like Buku box too. Oh yeah, for this. Oh yeah, at least twenty dollars for that single little balloon. If I mean minimum, this is New York, so it's probably closer to fifty dollars. <laughs> What's being hinted at in his name as like Doctor Ravensey? They so they call him Black in the book, which is I think what they're getting at here. Um, Raven and Sable are both terms for really deep black. Okay, we're gonna spill the beans here. This is famine. We've met our second horse person. And you can probably hear a little bit of squeaking sounds. So we apologize for that. Uh, we record in my house, which was built in the early 1900s. Yes. So sometimes it makes noise. And I have a very hard time sitting still today. Me so too. I'm and so sorry. Oh, I have to tell you. Okay. I have a spooky thing for you. Ooh. We might keep this in. We might not. Let's do it. So I went, <laughs> I went downstairs to get Christmas decorations. My basement is hella creepy. Two or three Christmases ago, I got my husband a lightsaber chopstick because we're both Star Wars yes. fans. And I found one down there. Oh. On the floor. Oh. Oh. I don't, <laughs> I don't know how that's, it got down there. Yeah. That's very strange. Oh, that's weird. It was creepy. I, I guess a ghost just wanted some yeah. chicken pad time. Besides me, people have seen. Yeah. Our friend has seen stuff in this. I, I Besides I, me. Yeah, I was gonna say I can't say anything because ghosts really don't like me. I've been told <laughs> we'll have um stuff show up. Like I will check a spot like ten times, and mm-hmm. um, four months later I'll find it in that spot. Yeah. Um, but anyways, they're friendly ghosts. At least they're trying to help you. They're like, you know, you've been checking here. I'm just gonna put it. Here I'm just gonna steal it. You find it. A chopstick, a singular chopstick. Yes, it's very strange. Anyways, we digress. We finished up with Dr. Sable in New York. And where are we going next? We are going to, this is our small desert town in Iowa, the good old U.S. of A. And he's in this, it's like a little fast food joint, kind of burger joint. Burger Lord or something? Yes, Burger Lord. So it's a playoff of a major American fast food chain. Yeah. And he is introducing a new dietary (laughs) dietary substance product to this chain called chow and it's not food it is chow and the warning so there's a waitress that's given it Mm -hmm. and you're supposed to like show the customers you have to press this button so it gives all the warnings and stuff Mm -hmm. because even a horse person is liable to human law it looks like yeah so the warnings for this are something it's might cause it might cause the loss of weight hair Loss of kidney function and can cause <laughs> anal leakage. Oofta. And it, it clearly states, too, if you listen, that chow is an inedible substance. It's not so a food. It's a... It, it's... It's an artificial substance. It is an artificial product. Um, and it's one of those... The deal behind it is people, even though they are eating a lot of this stuff, they're still starving to death. 
Yeah, because there's no nutritional value. I think it's being like, what's the word? Marketed. Okay. Sorry, marketed as like a weight loss thing, Mm -hmm. but like weight loss until you are no longer living. Right. And who shows up? Our man. Our man, the International Express driver. Who is quickly becoming our favorite character in this. (laughs) I love him. In this universe. He delivers the measuring scales to famine. And we also spot another honorable mention mm-hmm. who is cooking a burger. Leslie spots him, I think. But, like, Leslie is the International Express guy. Yes. And he's just, like, I think he pauses. No one else is phased. No. So we see Elvis. <laughs> and he's cooking a burger and he's just, oh, he is having the time of his life cooking this burger. And this is, like, the only time we really see Leslie being phased, too. He, like, pauses. He's like, nope. Yes, he literally, I mean, he walked into an actual gunfight in the middle of a presumably Middle Eastern desert where a redheaded lady whipped out a sword and started taking people out with it or planning to take people out with it. Didn't bother him. He walked away whistling. He sees Elvis and he literally nopes out of this choice. (laughs) Like, this is too much for me. Maybe he was a big Elvis fan. But there's a lot of conspiracy theories um, about him not being dead, mm-hmm. which this wasn't in the show, but it was in the novel that the, what was the paper that? It's the tabloid magazine that Carmine Zinberg, yes. a.k.a. War, writes as a war, as a war correspondence for. Hold on just a second. Okay. That there was an article about um, Elvis being alive and working in a burger joint, right? Yes. So it's just a kind of funny little thing. And there's lots of conspiracy theories that Elvis did not pass away and is still alive. Mm -hmm. But that's a whole nother type of podcast than what we're doing. (laughs) Leslie delivers the measuring scales. Famine tells his assistant to cancel all of his meetings. He's going to get on the first flight to Europe or to England. And then we jump away from that scene back to good old Sergeant Shadwell's apartment. My brain says Sarge, said, said Sergeant Pepper. Sergeant Pepper's apartment. So we're in London. Yes. Newt is convincing Shadwell to let him take a trip to Tadfield based on the weather patterns he's found. Shadwell allows it because that is also conveniently where uh, Aziraphale told him this boy was. An interesting kind of point to make here is that when Newt is like, yes, there's all this weird stuff. I really think we should check it out. Shadwell's kind of like, eh. And then he says it's Tadfield. And he's like, wait. Mm-hmm. You're on to something. Rings a bell. Rings a bell with him. Then we jump back to Aziraphale and Crowley. Aziraphale's bookshop phone rings. And it's his husband. It's Crowley. Telling him to meet him at the third alternative rendezvous. Aziraphale is confused about where that is as we are. <laughs> we know they have at least three. At least. Or four. If it's a third alternative. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. At least four places. We don't know where the other ones are. What, you know, something must have happened. Either something happened to make the other ones unsafe, or they're just, well, fail is a lot more suspicious and anxious about being caught than Crowley is. Yes. I do have a theory here, though, as well. That so there's also kind of a running joke from the novel, and you see little bits and pieces of it if you, pieces of it if you look very closely in the show. Crowley loves James Bond, 
that he fancies himself as James Bond or one of the other big uh, like kung fu guys, Bruce Willis, I think he was mentioned in the novel. Like an, I think he's an action hero. Yes, he's he's convinced he's an action hero. So I'm also wondering if that could have been a little bit Crowley, like, oh, we're going undercover. We got to meet at the third alternative rendezvous. And he, you can say, when Aziraphale's like, wait a minute, which one is that again? He's very put out that Aziraphale doesn't remember. <laughs> and then we are at this site. And this is one of the most difficult scenes oh. in this episode. Well, I take that back because the crucifixion scene was tough. Yeah. But as far as like Aziraphale and Crowley, this is one of the toughest fights of theirs to watch, I would say. <laughs> Agreed. So it starts with Crowley asking Aziraphale if he's found the Antichrist yet. Aziraphale does not tell him that he has. And he kind of really dances around the topic. Like you can tell he's a very bad liar. Oh, yeah. He's... He's stumbling over his words. Basically, he's doing the same thing here to Crowley that he did to the Archangels. Uh, And it's really interesting. You can tell, I mean, we kind of said this before, you can tell he just doesn't know what to do with this information. Either tell Heaven, which is technically the right thing to do, even though they insist on having this war that he knows is going to destroy the Earth. Or should he tell Crowley, who is the wrong person to tell, but... he trusts Crowley. He trusts him more than anyone else, I'd say, in the world. But I could say probably the universe, encompassing heaven and hell. He knows Crowley will help him stop the impending catastrophe. It's it's the question of ineffability again of, uh, you know, do we, do we stop this or do we let the earth be destroyed because it's ineffable? And I also want to point out that this is his kind of internal existential crisis is an example of morality versus conscience Mm -hmm. versus conscience right so he morally has been told his whole existence that heaven is good he has to report to heaven that is his job he's Mm -hmm. doing his job he's following his orders he is an angel his conscience is saying that but this isn't right and he's questioning it Instead of talking about Doctor Who, I'm going to talk about Star Wars. (laughs) So for those of you who are familiar with Star Wars, during episode three, Revenge of the Sith, Mm -hmm. Order 66 breaks out, Mm -hmm. and all of the clone troopers turn and attack the Jedi. If you don't know what I'm talking about, watch Star Wars. If you do, congratulations. Definitely watch Star Wars. So it's great. The Clone Wars era is actually one of my favorite ones, and one of like the things that you hear the clones say is good Good soldiers follow orders. Yeah. So they're kind of brainwashed into, there's a chip that makes them do this. Mm-hmm. So it's very much of, I have to follow the order versus, is this a thing that I can morally live with, with my conscience? Right. And it's that whole mentality of like, good soldiers follow orders. Good angels follow orders. Mm-hmm. That was a long digression. Sorry. That's okay. I, I could further it by saying there's a whole thing with Anakin there too. You know, what's the right thing to do? Follow what the Jedi are saying or save his wife. Well, and he's also, this is not a Star Wars podcast, he's <laughs> also a lot of confliction because the Jedi Order was really corrupt at that point. Oh, yeah. And, but he's listening to Palpatine, who, spoiler, is Darth Sidious, is like the major emperor. The, he's the big in bad. The, in the original Star Wars <laughs> yeah. trilogy. So he's being swayed by the dark side. There's probably a little bit of like Sith mind control influence going mm-hmm. on there, too. Yep. Just a nudge in the right direction. This is a whole other podcast, though. We love Star Wars. We, we do. We love Star Wars. We love Good Omens. We love all that nerd stuff. 
back to our ineffable husbands here. You can tell Aziraphale is really still holding out hope that everything might be okay. Mm-hmm. And he really is hoping that heaven will, th- will fix things. Maybe somehow Crowley is spared or pardoned. Mm-hmm. And he realizes that like Crowley is a good person entity. So there's this hope that everything will be okay. Heaven is the good guy. Heaven is the good guys. Mm-hmm. If you help me, you will be okay. Right. It's very naive and it's not very realistic, though. Right. It's it's true brainwashing. And we see this a lot in this episode. We really start to dig into the theme of Aziraphale's internal conflict. His ultimate goal is to do the right thing. He just, that's what he wants more than anything. He's desperate to just do the right thing. And unfortunately, it has been driven into him to the point of brainwashing that the right thing is whatever heaven wants, just like we just said about our whole digression with Star Wars. Anything else that is not mandated by heaven is just evil or bad or wrong. And unfortunately, even though Crowley is Aziraphale's best friend, he falls into that bad, evil, wrong category. And it, it really tear you can see it really tears at Aziraphale because he cares so much about this other being. Yeah, that manipulation, he's fighting it. So that manipulation from heaven, I mean. Mm-hmm. He's fighting it, but it's such a dichotomy in his head that it's like, I really trust and want my friend to be with me, but I've been told this my whole life and it's so imprinted. Right. It's sad. Once again, we go back to our classic solution. Of murder. (laughs) That's a big wedge that gets driven between him and Crowley is Aziraphale says, oh, uh, you you could kill the boy and then blood, uh, wow. Blood wouldn't be on heaven's hands. Yes. We got there eventually. Yes. Heaven won't have blood on its hands. And Crowley does not like that. He is very upset by that. And it starts to get heated. Mm -hmm. We've seen a couple of their arguments in the flashbacks, but this is probably the most intense one we've seen to date. It feels real. It feels like this, is a, this isn't just a petty, like, meh. It's intense. There's a lot at stake here, too. Yeah. Crowley decides that he's going to pull out the big guns, and he's like, you know what? Just forget this all. Mm-hmm. He's like, we can, we can go away somewhere like Alpha Centauri. It's nice there, apparently. But yeah. no. Um, but let, let's just run away. Go off to the stars together. What, what was the words? Like, even if this place is like a whole pile of boiling goo, it'll take them a while to get to the rest of the universe. Right. Even this, even if this place turns into a puddle, we can go off together. And Aziraphale is completely shocked. <laughs> um, and we really see this is our sort of confirmation that Crowley really wants more from this relationship. He kind of seems to want to move things into a more romantic territory. You know, let's run away together. And all that that, you know, that implies a lot, especially in today's day and age, that implies quite a bit. And it's also, we see their the differences in their morality, because we, we know that they both really, really like the earth. They mm-hmm. both really, they've been here, they care about it. Mm-hmm. The end all be all of what Crowley needs to protect is Aziraphale himself. Yes. As where Aziraphale is much more altruistically moral i'd say crowley's morality is more i need to keep the people i love safe yeah 
Aziraphalos, but I can't abandon the humans. They're a Slytherin and a Hufflepuff. They are. We're just going to jump into another fandom here. They are. So it's it's a very heart-wrenching scene. And then we get the the Crowley's like, we could be on our own side. And Aziraphale's like, there is no our side. I'm an angel. You're a demon. We're not friends. It's over. Ugh. Those are pretty much exactly the words. Yeah. It's rough. I can go fraternize with someone else. Yeah. I'm going to throw it, throw it back to the cold open uh, in the Victorian era where Crowley says, I have plenty of people to fraternize with. So you can tell they're both very hurt by this. Like, Aziraphale is, like, tearing up. Crowley is speed demoning off. Yeah, he thro- he hears the words, there is no our side, it's over. He just busts out of there. Just like Leslie in the Chow restaurant, he goes, nope, and walks away. Yep, and there's no resolution at this point. Right. And so we go from that scene to a much more peaceful one, but this one's also very kind of hair-raising. Mm-hmm. This is one of the few times where you're reminded that this is, like, a parody of a horror movie. Yeah. Yeah. Because it was a parody of The Omen. And we are in Adam's room, and you can see that he's been reading all of the witchy, occultish magazines Anathema left him. And he's gaining this entire new mindset. Mm -hmm. And he's sleeping, correct? Yes. He... We see him close a magazine and snuggle in and go to sleep. And in an earlier scene... We could hear the whispers around him while he's sleeping, mm-hmm. but we couldn't make them out. And now we can. And it's the whispers are, you can fix this. It's getting closer. It's getting stronger. Mend it all. End it all. And these whispers are very much it's interesting because I think they're supposed to be like, yeah, like, and the world is getting closer. And I can almost imagine Adam's subconscious of being like, you can fix it. Yes. You can fix it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a change coming. But it's not apocalyptic in the sense that it would end all. It's you can restart it. Yes. Again, kind of a childish mindset, you know, in a sense. And not a, meaning that in a, in a mean way. It's And a much more positive mindset than you would expect from the Antichrist. Yes, very much so. So we see him lay down to sleep. These whispers start and we flash. We suddenly start to hear over top of these whispers an alarm sounding. And we flash to a nuclear power station. And there are shenanigans afoot. The power plant is still producing electricity, but nothing is producing it. So they are, uh, these, these alarms are going off. There's something very weird happening. Even though the electrical output is still being, this is still happening. Something's going on with this reactor the minister, the prime minister, has to give them permission to actually open the containing room where the reactor is. Don't know what that's called. Again, we say we are not scientists. Not that kind, anyways. Not that kind, anyway. Yes. And he's he is called, and it's the middle of the night. Like You can tell it's kind of the middle of the night. And he's not thrilled about this phone call. He, you see him a close-up on his face, and, the cam- and he's on the phone... And the camera pans out and he's in bed. His company. He has company. <laughs> and his company is not thrilled that they are taking up, the minister is taking up their time. Yes. Adult content company. Yes. <laughs> like we said, the reactor isn't there. It's still producing electricity. Adam accidentally cr- fixed the energy problem with magic. Yes. 
But there is something there. And it's a sherbet lemon, which is like a lemon drop. Yeah. And it's the same snack Adam was eating right before bed. How I took this is he subconsciously, like in his sleep, did this because he was just reading about the about the power plants, right? Right. And then he falls asleep and he's like, I need he changes it not even consciously. Yeah, he doesn't realize he's done that. And I would like to point something out funny that has always made me laugh a little bit with this scene is, you know, they get the minister's permission, they open this room, they look down inside of it, and one of the people is like, oh, there's something you don't see every day, a giant room without a nuclear reactor. And one of the other engineers, scientists that's there is like, wait a minute, how is this possible? There's nothing there. And the third guy that's standing there goes, not nothing. There's something down there. And it's a sherbet lemon. Keep in mind, they're like three stories up. How did you see that? that? I'm like, dang, the radiation's been getting to you because you got x-rays. I know, right? It's a whole new Marvel superhero. <laughs> and they're they're not horribly panicked. No, they're pretty chill. Maybe they're in shock. Pro- uh, honestly, probably. I, what do you do? How do you fix? They're just like, well. Meltdown. We're they're not just... having a meltdown, I guess. <laughs> we're not having a meltdown and neither is this plant. <laughs> that was a horrible joke, but I'm keeping it in. <laughs> I love it. Do you have any closing thoughts about this episode? Just a quick little wrap-up, I suppose. Uh, Tadfield, we see now, is a central location to Armageddon. And we've got an Antichrist that's slowly coming into his power. We've got a Witchfinder private that is going to check out Tadfield. We've got an occultist that has no idea what she has just done (laughs) in giving Adam these magazines. And we've got two husbands that are in a major fight with each other, and it's very sad. It's very interesting how the episode... So we we talked about the the, clo- the cold open mm-hmm. in the last episode and how it starts in this very, like... Yes, there's some very deep, dark moments in it, but yeah. it's this, like, very wonderful little journey through memory lane. You go too fast for me is how it ends, doesn't it? It's it's like a bittersweet yeah. thing. So it, it opens and closes very much the same way. It's Yeah, that's true. What is your what is your quote of the week? So my quote of the week comes from Madam Tracy, and it's her sultry little hello on the phone because she just cracks me up. I just can't help it. Miranda Richardson, you can please come on the show too. We would love to have you. <laughs> um, so my quote, it serves it right for not bubbling when Adam and Anathema are talking about how much the nuclear power plants suck. And now how, yeah, how they need to go away. Serves them right for not. Serves them right for not bubbling. And then I also had, I I came up with a question of the week, which is a little bit questionable because I would hope neither one of us want to be the Antichrist or destroy the world. If we had the Antichrist's powers, what would be one thing you'd want to change? So I, I struggled because there's a lot of things in this world that just make me sad. But the one that I settled on was probably eradicating horrible illnesses, like, without any repercussions. I don't want any kind of, like, leprechaun shenanigans going on here where you say, oh, I wish for this. And then something really equally horrible happens, like... Like the monkey's paw thing or genies? Yeah. Uh, But I would like to eradicate things like cancer and other horrible, horrible, awful diseases. I would agree with that. And since you already took it, I will grab another one. I'm so sorry. No, you're good. Because my first thought was, like, would be things that would 
make people more empathetic. Mm. But then once again, it's a so monkey's paw scenario where everyone is so empathetic that it, that it becomes like a problem. Yeah. So if we're, I would say that I, I would change that there's more available resources for people who are dealing with Ooh. all kinds of things. So people who are dealing with diseases, people yes. who are dealing with domestic violence and abuse, mm-hmm. because this world is very sorely lacking even like medical funding. Yeah. No, I like that a lot. I think that would be in a uh, perfect world those things wouldn't exist. The yeah. the problems, but if we can't get rid of the the problems, being able to fix and offer more solutions to help. Yeah. That's oh. a good one. Once again, thank you for listening to this episode. It was the second part of Good Omens season 1, episode 3 Hard Times. I'm Bree. I'm Christiana. And we hope to see you in the next episode. But until then, choose your faces wisely. wisely.